is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. Moderna says its vaccine still 93% effective after six months. Good news. But it's joining Pfizer and recommending a booster. Shot number three. We'll get into whether those boosters are necessary or just a way for the pharmaceutical companies to make money. School is starting, but the Delta variant is still lingering. We'll look into what's being done to keep kids safe in the classroom. L.A. County, where we are, latest to require the workers, the county workers, to get vaccinated. It's 100,000 plus. Um, Do you get fired if you refuse? Let's start with money and booster shots. Dr. Christopher Murray is the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington Department of Global Health. And Christopher Snyder is professor of economics at Dartmouth College. He's being uh, or has been researching the economics behind the national vaccination campaign. Professor uh, Snyder, let's begin with you. Can you explain the economics behind this campaign? Well, um, the um, the government is is paying for these doses of vaccine from the uh, big manufacturers Pfizer and Moderna um, on behalf of the citizens, and then it's rolling out the vaccine campaign to to the citizens. Um, uh, you know, there's big externalities in, in vaccine, and so uh, the government is it's natural that they'd want to provide subsidies, um, and uh, you know that's that's promises of, of paying per dose. I think the the rate for Pfizer and Moderna, something like $30 a dose for, uh, that's $60 for a two-dose course, um, you know, that provides them with incentives to uh, do the research and development and to um, produce the vaccine. And they're covering the round for everybody, right? The first and the second, that's why we all got our shots for free. But is there anything that says they're going to buy our third or are we going to buy our third? Well, there's been no promise to do that. Uh, I think it was part of uh, part of the expectations of the firm. They were kind of thinking in the back of their mind, maybe this would become endemic, and so that would be a profit stream for them. Um, but uh, you know, there's a, there's a question about whether um, you know the, should the government take on faith firm reports? No, they should look closely at the data for sure. Um, are, are the firms trying to pull a fast one on the government? That seems to be a harder case to make. Okay, so now, uh, Dr. uh, Dr. Murray, um, and I want to make it clear, by the way, to listeners, this is not a a anti-vaccination discussion, because there's no doubt that these vaccines are very uh, effective and they're very safe and something that people, unless they have a reason, a good reason not to, should be getting. That said, uh, you know, the FDA and CDC, as I'm sure you know, the very day that Pfizer came out saying that they thought uh, we probably all need to get a booster shot probably in the fall. The FDA and the CDC normally are glacial in their announcements, uh, very quickly came out and in effect said, "Eh, not so fast. Uh, The data at the moment doesn't necessarily support that. And in the past few weeks, I've been following what the different experts have been saying, and no one, to my knowledge, has yet said that they thought the data does support that. Well, I'd have to disagree. (laughs) Okay. The I think we've seen data coming out of the Ministry of Health in Israel that is really compelling. So the good news out of their very careful analysis is that even six months after the second dose, the Pfizer stays effective for preventing uh, hospitalization and um, severe COVID probably at the 90% level, maybe 88, uh, you know, is the, is the pooled estimate. But when you look at infection, 
which of course matters for people getting back to normal life, uh, we see this very marked drop off. So if you got vaccinated in April, the vaccine is 75% effective for preventing uh, infection. If you were vaccinated in January, it's only 16% effective preventing infection. So, you know, sure, it's not gone through the usual mechanism of peer review, but the data are the data. And uh, at least from our take, uh, it it is starting to look pretty convincing that uh, for infection, um, you know, the, the, we see a waning effect. OK, so 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 you chose uh, the Israeli data. Let me choose the UK data. That seems to be the opposite. I mean, they're, they, they had a peak a few weeks ago. And now the infection rate seems to be going to their cases are going down. Right. But remember, to get effectiveness, you need to take into account, you know, when was second dose? So remember in the UK, they spaced first to second dose by about 12 weeks, not the three weeks for Pfizer. So there isn't anybody very much in the UK that's had their second dose six months ago. They mostly had their second dose in the window where we think effectiveness stays strong. And following the case rate, you know, there was just this huge explosion in Scotland and England in the last uh, months. It's only peaked in the last sort of 10 days uh, in cases. So, um, no, I mean, I think the, the the UK data doesn't really contradict the Israeli data just because of the way they dose the vaccine. Uh, plus, also, the UK is mostly AstraZeneca, which is a different vaccine. There's a much, much smaller fraction of the population that got the, the, the quote, good vaccines, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Dr. Murray, let's let's go back to you. And if we do need boosters, and maybe it's uh, around the wintertime, like these companies like Pfizer and Moderna are, are saying, is this a for everybody or is this for the immunocompromised? Is this for the elderly, those at the highest risk? Well, it's back to what, what we care about, right? If you're worried about... Um, hospitalization and death, then we're not yet sure about the importance of a booster. Uh, If we're worried about stopping transmission of COVID in the community and avoiding other measures that might have to be put in place to uh, bring down the toll of COVID on people that are not vaccinated or the toll in children um, or just the disruption of the workplace and having to wear masks, all those types of measures then it's a different story. Then, you know, we would want to see boosters on everybody to sustain immunity, to try to get to the point where we're going to have very little transmission. Um, the, the other factor that has to go into this is there's a global shortage of the mRNA vaccines. And so if we use boosters in this country, uh, that's fewer of the mRNA vaccines available for, for people in other countries to try to control COVID there. And I'm glad you just mentioned that. And I, and I want to bring back uh, Christopher Snyder into this because this is the economic part of this whole uh, story, because this discussion we're having about boosters is very much a, a discussion for rich countries. Uh, we're the ones that are really discussing having to give boosters, the United States, Germany, Israel, the UK, when, as you guys know, uh, many parts of the world, uh, Africa has about, what, 1% of its population vaccinated. So, Christopher Snyder, I mean, the economics are, are really good for the countries can, that can afford these vaccines, not so good for the ones who don't seem to be able to get them. That's a good point. I mean, in, in a better world where you're concerned about, say, global health, you know, there's a question about whether you want the third dose to go to the 
you know, rich countries like the US or whether it should be, you know, the first dose, dose going into middle and poor, middle income and poor countries. Um, but, you know, the world uh, as that's sort of the imagined world, but the world we live in, you know, countries are focused on protecting their own citizens first. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the US's perspective. In a sense, it doesn't have to be um, a sort of uh, prisoner's dilemma or everyone fighting for scarce resources. Um, you know, this, this is really arguing for more capacity. I've kind of uh, been calling for this for, for a year now, um, you know, more capacity to build vaccine, um, both to, you know, supply boosters, let's say, for rich countries and, uh, you know, first doses for poor and middle-income countries and the booster when they're needed. Uh, in a sense, the, the, the silver lining behind the cloud here is that, you know, you might imagine if it was just a one and done that firms wouldn't have much incentive to build large uh, capacity because, you know, then what would they do with it when uh, the pandemic is over? But if there's a prospect that the disease is going to be endemic, that gives them economic incentives to build that capacity because it's going to be sustained demand. Christopher Snyder there, economist at Dartmouth and Dr. Christopher Murray, Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation, University of Washington. Kids are headed back to school, but a lot of parents are nervous because of the Delta variant that's still running wild. Schools under pressure to prevent outbreaks, so what can they do? Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, with KYW's Matt Leon about making sure schools don't become super spreader locations. Like all of us, we're, we're frustrated and a little bit discouraged by seeing the, the increase in cases from the Delta variant. But I, I think it's all, we also know and we know from our experience over the past year that, that we can get kids back safely to in-person learning with, with good safety precautions. Um, and we saw that last year even, even in times uh, of high community spread. And so, you know, what that means this for us this year is really, you know, doubling down and making sure that that for those who are eligible to be vaccinated, that, that we encourage them to get vaccinated and make sure that, that everybody has the information that they need to help them make that decision. Um, it means that within when we're in the schools, we're really implementing those layered precautions uh, that, that we talk about in the American Academy of Pediatrics and our guidance, um, which include things like good hand washing, physical distancing, universal masking for children uh, ages two and up, and all the adults in the school building, good access to testing. Um, so all of these things together, if we, if we really work together and we make sure that, that these things are in place, we can absolutely get our kids back to school safely. What do we know about the Delta variant and its effect on children? Is it more dangerous for children than the earlier strains, which it seemed for the most part uh, spared children? Or is it just children under 12 aren't vaccinated and this strain is more transmissible. So obviously you're going to see more kids get sick. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, and I, I think there's a couple things to point out. You know, first is that, well, well, thankfully, children are less at risk for severe infection than, than old, you know, older adults or adults with, with immune compromising conditions. Um, they still can get quite sick. You know, over the past year, we've seen over 16,000 children hospitalized for COVID-19. And so, so we know that even, you know, low risk doesn't mean no risk. Um, and so, so even prior to the Delta variant, you know, we, we saw that kids kids could get sick. You know, with, with kids in the Delta variant, we're seeing a lot of the same things we're seeing in adults, um, which is that it is much more transmissible. And so we're seeing much increased numbers, you know, quite, quite increased numbers of kids infected. Um, you know, in fact, you know, even over the past week, the number of children uh, infected with COVID-19 has almost doubled. So, so we are seeing big surges there. 
you know, we're hearing from pediatricians across the country and particularly in areas where rates uh, of COVID infection are high, that they are seeing a lot of sick kids. Um, they're seeing a lot of sick kids in their offices and their emergency rooms and in, in their hospitals. And so, you know, I, I think it's just uh, important when we know that we have, we have the tools to help prevent the spread of COVID-19, the, the Delta variant, and, and at least so far other variants as well, um, that, that it's just really important for us to be using those tools in our toolbox, the vaccination, the masking under appropriate circumstances, all, all the, the different pieces that, that need to come together to help make sure that we're decreasing the spread of COVID-19. Should we expect, if we haven't already, to see schools make vaccination mandatory for kids 12 and up right now uh, and teachers and staff? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's going to really depend on the individual s- school district. Um, I think what, what we certainly hope is that is that that parents will will, you know, will make be making that decision regardless um, that, you know, we we want to make sure families have access to good information. And we believe that with that, that access to good information, you, you know, we hope that families will make the decision to, to get their adolescents uh, vaccinated and get themselves vaccinated. Um, you know, a couple great resources for that. We've got a great website um, for, through our partnership with Ad Council and the COVID Collaborative Vaccine Education Campaign, getvaccineanswers.org. Um, American Academy of Pediatrics has a great website, healthychildren.org. And so so I think, you know, our our, our hope is that by really working together, families will, will be making that decision regardless of what a school mandate is. And I know I don't know if you would have any insight to this, but I know I've got a nine-year-old and I'm very anxious for the green light to get him vaccinated. Ballpark for parents, I think a lot of parents would feel a lot better about the fall if they could get their their kid under 12 vaccinated. I don't think it's going to happen by September, but from what you're hearing, what you're understanding, where the process is, when do you think parents should reasonably start thinking that they would be able to get their kid a shot. Yeah, you know, pediatricians are eager to, you know, we we want to make sure we're protecting, you know, the kids we take care of in our practices and our our communities. Um, you know, I think we're 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 hearing what everybody is. Um, you know, it's it's of course important for the FDA to do its due diligence and make sure that that vaccines are safe and effective before they're authorized. I think we're we're pretty optimistic based on everything we've been hearing that that uh, for younger kids, uh, the vaccine will be available by the fall or early winter. Um, and, and we're eager for that to happen as soon as it's safely possible, because I, I agree, um, you know, the, the, our, our younger kids right now don't have, have availability to have the vaccine. And as parent, you know, you, you spoke to it as a parent of a younger kid, you know, you, you want that option available to you. And, and again, I think it goes back to why it's so important for all of us in communities who are eligible to get vaccinated to get vaccinated. Um, because if we all get vaccinated, Vaccinated, that helps decrease the, the spread of COVID-19 in communities. And it means our youngest kids, our littlest ones, are less at risk for getting infected when we do our part to, to help protect ourselves and the community. Given everything, this will be the third year for a lot of kids that will be affected one way or another, you know, at least in part by COVID restrictions, you know, depending upon the school district, obviously. But how concerned should we be about the effect this is having on kids past the virus just three years of odd socialization and it's nobody's fault it's the best 
doing the best we can, but kind of the ripple effects of this that go past kind of just infection. Yeah, it, it is. It is really concerning, and I think that um, it, you know, it, I do worry about about kids. And I think that you know, there's a, a saying that that many people uh, you may have heard is that we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Um, and so, you know, so so all of our kids, I think, have have really felt felt the burden of the pandemic, but but some a lot more than others. You know, over forty thousand. Uh, kids we estimate have lost a, a parent or caregiver to COVID-19. Um, you know, lots of other kids are living in really stressful situations for a variety of reasons. And so I, so I, I you know, I, so I do worry um, about our kids. And I, I think a couple of things, I think it's why it, it is actually so important for all of us to do our part um, to help decrease the spread of COVID and get get kids back into in-person school safely, um, because that 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 is a really important, even if it's not 100% back to quote unquote normal, it's a really important step in the right direction. Um, and it's a really important step in helping our kids get getting back to do the things that that are going to help them them thrive. Um, you know, they, they also are really, you know, I mean, I should say kids are incredibly resilient. And if we give them the support and resources that they need, they will do well. Um, but 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 we, we as adults have to do our, our part to do that. And I think it's also really important for us to make sure we're investing in our schools and make sure we're investing in our communities and our mental health systems so that that those resources that kids and families need are available to them. Coming up after this short break, could workers in the country's most populated county be fired if they don't get vaccinated? Los Angeles County workers now ordered to get vaccinated. They're just the latest in a list of public sector workers under vaccine mandates. That's more than 100,000 people. So what if a lot of them refuse? What happens with us? One of the five county supervisors, Janice Hahn. So, Supervisor, what are the negative consequences of not getting vaccinated? Well, it's clear that uh, as a result of this Delta variant and as a result of this pandemic still being uh, mostly among the unvaccinated and our cases uh, going up, our hospitalizations going up, we're ready to mandate that all county employees get vaccinated. I think that's uh, important. We have 111,000 employees. We're the largest employers employer here in, in the region. And I think it sends a message and we hope other uh, companies and businesses will follow our lead. Now, if I'm a county employee and I say, no, I don't want to be vaccinated, do I get fired? Is there some way I can test out of this every week? What are the consequences? Well, I love my county employees. Uh, you know, my dad loved county employees. I, I've been a big champion for our county employees. Uh, I'm one of those that wants to give more work uh, to in-house county employees as opposed to contracting out. So I am not interested in this becoming a reason to fire uh, anybody. We've got great county employees who perform, uh, you know, amazing services to, to the public. Uh, I think the direction we will be going in is you must be vaccinated uh, or you succumb to a a weekly test because we're going to start bringing back our county employees, many uh, who have been teleworking all this time. We're going to be bringing them back uh, into our buildings. We're going to be opening up our county buildings in the fall. We're going to be interacting with the public again. So I think it's a workplace safety issue. Get vaccinated, but if you don't, uh, you know, your fellow employees need to know whether or not it's safe for them 
to be, you know, sitting in the cubicle next to you. So, and, and here comes sort of uh, the interesting potential catch, and we did this on the show a few days ago, that, you know, the federal law mandates right now that if your doctor recommends testing, that has to be covered in its entirety by insurance, if you have insurance. But uh, employer-mandated uh, coverage it doesn't really exist unless your employer wants to pick up the tab, which means in this case, taxpayers. So if you go that route, that either vaccine or weekly testing, will the employees have to pick up the tab themselves, which would be a pretty good economic incentive to get vaccinated, I think, uh, or are taxpayers going to shell out money every week to get them tested? That's a really good question. And um yeah, when I when I first began hearing the how much it's going to cost to do this weekly testing, it's a it's a bit of a sticker shock, and the fact that our our um, health insurance policies maybe won't cover it. My first reaction was I was a little upset at our insurance companies once again, uh, kind of saying, "Here we go again." This is kind of why we had the Affordable Care Act in the first place was because insurance companies were deciding what could and couldn't be covered, whether or not it had anything to do with your overall well-being or health. So I think we should still push back on our our employee mandated uh, or our health insurance plans. Um, I think, uh, you know, we should look to, to the state. Maybe the insurance commissioner can look at that because I think this is something that should be uh, covered because it definitely is about your, your well-being and the well-being of others. On the other hand, there is a school of thought. I think one of my fellow supervisors uh, is interested in not making the testing so much a punishment, uh, but more of an inconvenience or a burden so that, you know, you're right. At some point they think, you know what, unless there's a medical exemption or religious exemption, they may think, you know what, it might be easier to get back uh, vaccinated. Our goal is to get more people vaccinated in L.A. County, right? That's our goal because we know that is going to overall protect the health of everybody. So any way we can get there, I think we're going to look at, and I think we're going to debate that on Tuesday uh, when we talk about this vaccine mandate. What are all the possibilities um, and the ways to actually implement this policy? Well, there's a mandate possibility like L.A. City's looking at just for indoor public Mm -hmm. places for everybody, you know, people who don't work for the county, but just all of us. Is the county interested in doing something like that? I think we are interested in doing something like that. I think we're going to take a look at how it's going to work uh, in Los Angeles, look at some of the challenges that they may um, experience. But I don't know if people would be surprised by this, but we are hearing from business groups that actually like the idea of mandating that people, only people who are vaccinated can go into indoor public spaces. Being an undercover cop or detective sounds like a cool job. You get to be sneaky and pretend to be someone to bust the bad guys. Now, if that sounds like fun, how about doing it on the Spanish island of Ibiza, known for its nightclubs and partying? Private detectives are wanted who can pass as tourists to help stop illegal raves that officials say contribute to the COVID surge. The waves are being organized illegally because all of the clubs have to close at one in the morning under coronavirus restrictions. Successful applicants will be from 30 to 40 years old and should be able to blend in with partygoers. That would be such a great job. (laughs) 
that we real. I mean, you get paid to to like party yeah. and also to spy on people and then arrest, uh, then like bust them. You go to the bar, you what get a drink, job. and then you say, "I'm shutting this place down." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what a, that, that's a great job. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And send Mike and me an application. <laughs>